0: Chapter 19, Part 1 The Iraqi Civil War Comes Into the Open, January to June 2006, of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1, by U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Chapter 19 The Iraqi Civil War Comes Into the Open. January to June, 2006 Page 529 For General George Casey Jr. and Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad, the high Sunni voter turnout of December 2005 signified an opportunity to be exploited. Iraq's Sunnis had disregarded threats from al-Qaeda in Iraq, or AQI, and other hardline insurgent groups against joining the political process, the U.S. leaders noted, and the time was right to expand outreach to Sunni leaders to draw them further away from Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and other Sunni rejectionists. From his headquarters in Tampa, Florida, General John Abizade agreed, asking his staff in late 2005 how best to exploit the strategic advantage he believed the coalition had gained over al-Qaeda in 2005. Coalition leaders also believed 2006 would be the year increasingly capable Iraqi security forces would be able to shoulder much of the burden for internal security, allowing U.S. forces to extricate themselves from the country gradually, as Casey's campaign plan had envisioned. If the coalition could build on the momentum created by Sunni's decision to vote, then 2006 could be the year in which the coalition and its Iraqi partners defeated AQI. In the course of events, these expectations would not last long. Instead of stabilizing under the influence of a solidifying government and a maturing security force, Iraq was about to erupt in a sectarian conflict that would derail multinational force Iraq's, or MNFI's, drawdown plans and prompt a divisive debate within the coalition over how to prosecute the war. The Response to the December Elections page 529. Iraq's Sunni leaders viewed the December 2005 election results in far different terms than coalition leaders. Within days of the voting, unofficial election returns began to indicate a large plurality for the Shia Islamist parties in the United Iraqi Alliance, or UIA, and Sunni political leaders realized they faced a political disaster. Having campaigned with the deeply mistaken assumption that Sunnis formed a much larger portion of the Iraqi electorate than they actually did, Sunni politicians had unrealistically expected to win a major share of power in the new parliament. In essence, many Sunnis had come to the conclusion that their best hope to return to power was not with the insurgent group hizb al or the Ba'athist Party of the Return, but with the political process the Coalition and the United Nations, or UN, had established re-establishing a share of control over Iraq's political levers of power might also have enabled them to stop what they saw as a renegade Shia sectarian government that was using Iraq's security forces to terrorize Sunnis and cleanse them from the Baghdad region. However, as the unofficial vote count showed that Iraq's Shia and Kurdish parties together would easily have a majority in the 2006 parliament, it became clear that the Sunni parties possessed little power to secure their constituencies' political aims. After spending several months urging the Sunni populace to reconcile themselves to the new political process in the hopes that it would return them to power, Sunni leaders realized they had gambled their political reputations on the election outcome and lost. On December 20th, five days after the election, several key Sunni leaders, including Tariq Hashimi and Khalaf Ulayan, met with Casey to express their anger and frustration at the election result. Unwilling to accept the reality of their demographic minority, they alleged that the impending Shia-Kurdish victory was the result of massive voter fraud. According to notes from the meeting, furious Sunni leaders noted that they had, quote, spoken out for participation in the elections, it turned out to be useless, and now they are shut out of the political process and have lost credibility within their community. End quote. The encounter worried Casey enough that in a discussion with President George W. Bush the following day, he identified Sunni disappointment with the election results and the potential that the disappointment could lead to increased violence as the most significant of post-election challenges. The looming reality that electoral disappointment could lead to increased violence was further evidence that the elections, rather than serving as venues for national reconciliation, had in fact been destabilizing events that helped push the country toward civil war. A Second Look at Force Reductions Casey's concerns about the Sunni political reaction, however, did not alter MNFI's plans. By January 5, 2006, Casey had regained enough optimism to predict to Bush that MNFI would be able to cancel the deployments of a total of four Brigade Combat Teams, or BCT, and one Marine Regimental Combat Team, or RCT, for the next troop rotation, drawing the U.S. forces down to just 10 BCTs and one RCT in Iraq by October 2006. While pleased with the scope of these estimates, Secretary of Defense or SecDef Donald Rumsfeld was unhappy with their speed. Preferring an acceleration of the drawdown with further troop reductions in January. Casey disagreed, judging that it was too soon to gauge the full impact of the elections and of December's two brigade off ramp decision. Quote, Broad trends in Iraq develop over time, he wrote to Rumsfeld, and week to week and even month to month upward or downward spikes in enemy activity or friendly capabilities often do not identify the true long term trends. End quote. MNFI had developed a procedure to evaluate force structure decisions on a quarterly basis, Casey explained, and he proposed to postpone any decisions until the formal reviews scheduled for March, June, and September, each of which might support a decision to cut one to two brigades. Quote, Reacting to monthly data spikes or making the next off ramp decision before the impact of previous unit off ramps is determined risks making off ramp decisions prematurely, end quote, Casey argued. Rumsfeld, after insisting that a special limited distribution briefing be put together for him, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or CJCS, and the U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM commander, relented and agreed to wait until March to make any decisions. However, Casey and Rumsfeld agreed that in March they expected to make a decision that would curtail the 2nd Brigade, 28th Infantry Division, Pennsylvania National Guard by one month and curtail 1st Brigade, 10th Mountain Division by three months, with neither of those brigades replaced, effectively drawing down the U.S. contingent to 13 BCTs by May. MNFI's Sunni Outreach Having convinced Rumsfeld that the time was not right to consider additional troop reductions, Casey turned his attention to attempting to exploit the perceived success of the election through other means. Instead of trying to mollify Sunni anger over the election defeat, Casey and other coalition leaders worked to broker better relationships between Sunnis and the Shia leaders of the government. In January, Casey took Prime Minister Ibrahim al-Jafri to Ramadi to confer with a group of local leaders called the Anbar Security Council. After months of subsequent meetings, Jafari would eventually pledge $75 million in reconstruction funds for the city, although the Iraqi government would never actually follow through on this promise. Jafari would also agree to hire 15,000 Anbaris into the Iraqi Security Forces, or ISF, to offset Sunni perceptions that the ISF was becoming a Shia sectarian tool, with the tribal sheikhs who were already working with the coalition's Desert Protectors Initiative used to vet the new recruits. In addition to continuing their engagements with the Anbari sheikhs, MNFI leaders began to expand their months-long negotiations with Sunni insurgent groups with the aim of permanently severing them from AQI and its allies. Even before the December election turnout, there had been promising signs that some of the Sunni insurgent groups were ready to turn against Zarqawi and AQI. By September 2005, The question of whether to participate in the elections had created a deep rift between AQI and other insurgent groups, a severe enough rupture that members of the 1920 Revolutionary Brigades and the Islamic Army in Iraq had agreed to form an alliance to destroy AQI over the issue. AQI, in turn, had begun targeting leaders from these rival groups in order to preserve its supremacy in the insurgency. Aware of these intra-insurgent dynamics, MNFI and the U.S. Embassy had deftly begun to coax the less recalcitrant insurgent groups into the political process, aided by many Sunnis' grudging acknowledgment that the coalition was becoming a necessary protector against the sectarian behavior of the Joffrey government. By February 2006, Discussions between mid-level leaders in MNFI and the Sunni Iraqi resistance had gained enough momentum that, for the first time, Casey authorized a U.S. general officer, Major General Richard Rick Lynch, to begin formal talks with representatives of at least 15 insurgent groups. Casey believed that Sunni insurgents had become more willing to negotiate in good faith because they hoped the United States could act as a counterweight to rising Iranian influence. At one point, Casey became hopeful enough about the negotiations' prospects that he briefly considered using the occasion of the seating of the new Iraqi government, expected to take place as early as March or April, to announce the end of coalition offensive operations and the beginning of reconciliation efforts, an idea that would soon be overcome by events. The Mujahideen Shura Council While the election outcome alarmed Sunni political leaders who saw themselves headed for a much smaller share of government power than they had hoped, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was apprehensive by the election result as well, but for different reasons. The high Sunni turnout in the December 15th vote had indeed been a political setback for AQI, whose demand that Sunnis boycott the political process had fallen flat, and Zarqawi and AQI needed to take quick measures to bolster their popular support. As a Jordanian leader of an insurgent organization with a large number of non-Iraqis, Zarqawi was vulnerable to other Sunni groups' assertions that he and AQI did not operate according to native Iraqi interests. Zarqawi also was stung by the criticisms from al-Qaeda's senior leadership in the Zawahiri and Atiyah letters, and he had searched for a way to soften his image. His solution to these political problems was to put an Iraqi face on his jihad by creating an insurgent front group consisting of AQI and five smaller, native Iraqi insurgent groups. Two senior Sunni insurgents, Muharib Jabouri and Mullah Nadim Jabouri, organized the groups in a meeting in the Tigris River town of Duluia, about 97 kilometers north of Baghdad and a mere 16 kilometers from the coalition airbase at Balad. The resulting Mujahideen Shura Council that announced itself on January 15, 2006, succeeded in attracting some senior Iraqi insurgent leaders, including Ibrahim al-Badri, the future Iraqi state in Syria or ISIS caliph Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. It also created partnerships with elements of the 1920 revolutionary brigades in Diyala and Jaish al-Islami in Baghdad, the two insurgent groups whose members elsewhere had turned against AQI during the election season. Despite the Shura Council's purported Iraqi leadership and claims that it could moderate AQI's behavior, in reality it was a thinly disguised vehicle for Zarqawi and AQI. As the real power behind the Council, Zarqawi would continue his campaign to provoke a sectarian response from Iraq's Shia community, a strategy that some Iraqi insurgents did not endorse. The Samara Mosque Bombing Page 532. The formation of the Mujahideen Shura Council was followed five weeks later by AQI's most significant terrorist bombing of the Iraq War. Throughout 2005, U.S. officials had carefully watched the Iraqi Shia community's reaction to Zarqawi's campaign and tended to conclude that Shia leaders were able to preserve the Shia population's patience as it absorbed the brunt of AQI's mass casualty attacks, especially in Baghdad. Just five days after the December elections, MNFI's December 20, 2005 campaign progress review assessed that the AQI-led insurgency had failed, quote, to foment sectarian violence. Terrorist attempts to provoke violent Shia retaliation have failed. End quote. Just two months later, however, Zarqawi and AQI would succeed spectacularly in this regard. Samara, a city with a Sunni majority population 129 kilometers north of Baghdad and just 29 kilometers from the town where the Mujahideen Shura Council had been founded, was home to the Askariya Shrine one of the four holiest sites in the Shia world, along with the shrines in Karbala, Najaf, and Khadimiya. With its famous Golden Dome, the Askariya Mosque was the destination of hundreds of thousands of Shia pilgrims who made their way to Samarra to worship at the burial place of Shia Islam's 10th and 11th imams. Shortly after midnight, on February 22, 2006, seven members of AQI, two Iraqis, one Tunisian and four Saudis, entered the shrine dressed as Iraqi police officers and captured the five security guards posted there. The AQI men quickly went to work wiring the mosque with explosives and just before 7 a.m. detonated their charges, collapsing the Golden Dome and doing extensive damage to the mosque itself. The attackers had chosen their target and timing well, doing their work with no interference from U.S. troops or Iraqi security forces coalition troops had scarcely any forces nearby to prevent the attack or respond to the aftermath. As a byproduct of MNFI's ongoing base closure effort, the main coalition bases inside Samara had again been shut down in late 2005, leaving only two platoons from the 101st Airborne Division, a Special Police Transition Team, and a Special Forces Operation Detachment Alpha, or ODA, inside the city of 350,000. One of the bombers later claimed that quote, the shrines of the Alaskari Imams were chosen because of their religious importance and their geographical location, and the choice was meant to cause sectarian division among the people. End quote. We're not seeing civil war. The news of the Samara Shrine's destruction unleashed an immediate and furious reaction by Shia across Iraq. In the days that followed, sectarian violence that had previously been mostly clandestine and limited began to explode into the open. In several major cities, Shia protesters flooded the streets calling for revenge. Black-clad Shia militia members dominated the protests which, in many places, gave way to attacks against Sunni mosques by militiamen using rocket-propelled grenades and automatic weapons. By the end of the day of the Samara bombing, the Interior Ministry reported that 27 mosques had been attacked in Baghdad alone and several Sunni clerics murdered. Attacks against Sunni mosques took place in Basra, Diyala, and central Iraq as well. A wave of killings accompanied the mosque attacks. In one instance, armed men claiming to be police reportedly removed Sunni prisoners from a jail and killed them. In another case, US troops found a fresh mass grave with 47 bodies the day following the bombing. At MNFI headquarters, Casey was inundated with frantic phone calls from Sunni leaders reporting militia attacks against Sunni mosques and civilians. Although Casey discounted much of the reporting as hysteria, he and Khalilzad agreed that the danger of a dramatic escalation of violence was high and urged Joffrey to impose a 24 hour nationwide curfew. The two U.S. leaders were dumbfounded when the Iraqi prime minister refused, telling them blithely that, quote, the Shia have to blow off steam right now. End quote. In the hours and days that followed, dozens of bodies, many with signs of torture and mutilation, appeared on the streets and in the Tigris River. The bodies found by U.S. patrols were collected and delivered to the overflowing Baghdad morgue. What had previously appeared to be a narrowly targeted systematic murder campaign devolved into random sectarian killings, with factors that before had served as a bulwark against the violence, such as intermarriage or tribal ties, seeming to dissolve overnight. Saman Dlaur Hussein, an Iraqi Sunni, later described how quickly the wave of violence broke over Baghdad. Quote, the night of the bombing, the head of a prominent Sunni family was murdered in Washash in Baghdad and left in the street. It was a statement by the Mahdi army saying no Sunni was safe there anymore, no matter who they were. Everyone understood what that one killing meant for our area, and we were afraid. And after that, the real killing started. End quote. In the several days following the Samara bombing, media sources estimated that approximately 1,300 Sunnis were killed and over 100 Sunni mosques attacked by Shia militants. Eight Sunni clerics were killed in the first 24 hours. A clerk at the Baghdad Morgue told desperate Sunni families that the morgue required extra time to locate their missing family members because more than 1,000 bodies had been delivered since the day of the bombing, and a UN official separately reported the same figure to the New York Times. Despite what media sources were indicating, MNFI reports in the aftermath of the bombing gave a different, less alarming picture of the violence. MNFI statistics showed considerably lower levels of violence, a fact explained in retrospect by the coalition's apparent loss of situational awareness and reliance on faulty metrics. As the violence was unfolding, much of the MNFI leadership discounted the divergence between media reporting and MNFI's internal reporting as the result of sensationalized press reports and the exaggerations of Iraqi Sunnis. Representative of this thinking was a February 28th report by MNFI analysts that played down the number of protests and attacks on Sunni mosques on the day of the Samara bombing, noting that, quote, There were 81 reports of mosques being attacked and damaged that originated from sources other than MSCs, or Major Subordinate Commands. Of the 81, 50% were undamaged and another 20% were only lightly damaged. This accounts for nearly three quarters of all the reports of damaged mosques. Seventy eight of the eighty three demonstrations directly attributable to the attack were peaceful, and of the five described as violent, the total BDA or battle damage assessment was one ISF killed and three civilians injured. End quote. Mirroring this assessment on the day after the bombing, Coalition spokesman Lynch told a press gathering, quote, We're not seeing civil war igniting in Iraq. We're not seeing 77, 80, 100 mosques damaged. We're not seeing death in the streets. We're seeing a confident, capable Iraqi government using their capable Iraqi security force to calm the storm that was inflamed by a horrendous, horrific terrorist attack yesterday against the Golden Mosque in Samara. End quote. In Washington, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice echoed Lynch on the same day, saying, quote, I don't think we do the Iraqi people any good, or really that we are fair to them, in continually raising the specter that they might fall into civil war. End quote. Yet, despite the differing statistics, Casey chose to hedge his bets by instructing his subordinate commanders just two days after the Samarra attack that the situation demanded more than, quote, business as usual, end quote. In a strategic directive issued on February 24th, Casey outlined the ways in which increasing ethno-sectarian violence could jeopardize the coalition's mission in Iraq, and urged his subordinates to take measures to dampen tensions and stabilize the situation, particularly in Baghdad. Still, Casey viewed the bombing mainly as a threat to future progress, rather than a near-term unraveling of the security situation. While the attack and its aftermath had triggered warnings, he judged the crisis could be managed and even used as an opportunity to bolster confidence in the Iraqi government and demonstrate the capability of the Iraqi security forces, thus reinforcing his overall strategy to put the Iraqis, quote, in the lead, end quote, and help them as they handled the security situation. Yet, for the first time, Casey's command guidance delved explicitly into the sectarian conflict that had been roiling Iraq since the toppling of Saddam Hussein. Casey ordered his subordinates to quote prevent the fracture of the ISF along sectarian lines, end quote. to quote remain alert for indicators of ethnic or sectarian movement, end quote. and to block extra governmental armed groups from filling a perceived security vacuum. End quote. Casey was right to warn his units of these dangers. While the initial spasm of killing seemed to die down after several days, it was replaced by an increasing number of systematic sectarian abductions, murders, and bombings. On March eighth, armed men in police uniforms kidnapped and later killed 50 Sunnis at a security company in West Baghdad owned by relatives of Ghazi al Yawer, Iraq's former interim president. On March 12th, six car bombs ripped through Shia neighborhoods, killing an estimated 50 people and wounding at least 200 more in coordinated attacks that bore AQI's hallmark. Even elite members of the Iraqi Special Operations Forces, or ISOF, brigade were not spared, with four Sunnis from the unit kidnapped and executed in the first week of March. The U.S. advisors from the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force, or CJSOTF, who accompanied ISOF members to recover the bodies in the Baghdad Morgue, were shocked at what they discovered. Throngs of Iraqis queued outside the morgue to look for their missing relatives. Inside, room after room contained stacks of bodies, some with their hands still zip-tied and many displaying evidence of torture. When the special operators asked the morgue employees whether the collection of bodies represented a week's worth or longer, The employees simply responded that it was what had come in overnight. Sensing that they were witnessing a significant event that had not registered with coalition leaders, the operators recorded the scene and passed the video to Multinational Corps Iraq, or MNCI, and MNFI leaders. The scene at the morgue was a sign that the Baghdad region had begun to devolve into a chaotic state, with populations of either sect coming to realize that neither the Iraqi government nor the coalition could effectively protect them. As a result, previously unaligned civilians began joining militias to survive or seek revenge. Across Baghdad, minority Iraqis in heterogeneous neighborhoods were driven out by violence and threats fleeing to the relative safety of neighborhoods where their own sect was the majority. Ali Khadam, an Iraqi Shia, later described how his family was swept up in Baghdad's demographic changes. The area we lived on the western edge of Baghdad was mostly Sunni, but there were several Shiite families. After the Samarra bombings, all the Shiite families got threat letters from al-Qaeda in Iraq. The notes were delivered to every Shiite house. The letters said we were dirty collaborators working with the Americans, the Iranians, and the Jews and said we had 72 hours to leave. We didn't bother to take anything from the house, just some blankets for the children, because it was cold weather then. End quote. As the weeks passed, The violent outburst of February 22 gradually settled into what were apparently coordinated plans by militant groups to cleanse mixed neighborhoods of the opposing sect and, having captured those neighborhoods, use them as bases from which to strike areas controlled by the opposing side. One Sunni insurgent group's operational plan, captured in the weeks following the Samara attack, instructed its militant members that, quote, the priority in Baghdad is the Shia, drive away the Shia and expel their businesses and workplaces from our areas, expel all merchants of gas, bread, or meat, move the battle to the Shia depths, and cut off the paths from them by any means necessary to put pressure on them to leave their areas." Once neighborhoods had been taken over, militias such as Jaish al-Mahdi quickly began to serve as surrogates for the state, taking over social services and quasi-government functions. With mass expulsions from neighborhoods occurring on both sides, the militias began assuming responsibility in some neighborhoods for providing the basic needs of shelter, security, and food. Rasim Haikal, an Iraqi Shia, described this process. The Mahdi army had basically taken over our neighborhood in northern Baghdad by the middle of 2006. They were very open about it. They established checkpoints on the main roads to search cars coming and going. At that time in our area they controlled everything and were involved in everything. One day they summoned me and a bunch of other ration distributors in the area. They made it seem like an official meeting. They said the government had given them authority to collect any rations dedicated to Sunni families and redistribute them to families of Shiite martyrs. Most of the distributors were so scared they agreed to cooperate without asking questions, even though it was not clear whether there had been such an order from the government. End quote. In short order, the bombing had driven Iraq's mixed sect regions into a situation in which the central government had all but failed, with the population's basic needs increasingly met through associations with localized, religiously affiliated groups, and with mass migrations rising significantly. Considering the post-bombing period in hindsight, Major General Richard Zaner, Casey's intelligence director, judged that Shia leaders such as Muqtada Sadr had quote, basically let JAM or Jaish al-Mahdi off the leash end quote, and allowed Shia militants to indiscriminately attack Sunni mosques, Sunni citizens, and even anyone with a Sunni name. The Shia attacks inevitably caused retaliatory violence from the Sunni population creating a cycle of violence with significant momentum and inertia. In essence, quote, it grew to become a self-sustaining sectarian conflict, end quote, Zahner recalled. Despite these unmistakable signs of civil war, less than a week after the mosque bombing, CJCS U.S. Marine General Peter Pace began using a refrain that would be repeated frequently in the coming months, remarking, quote, I think that the Iraqi people, Kurds, Shia, Sunni, walked up to the abyss, took the look in, didn't like what they saw, have pulled together, have pulled back from violence, and are working together to keep things calm and to find the right mix for their own government. Casey adopted a similar tone in his press engagements and discussions with U.S. officials in Washington. Casey maintained that the level of violence had been overstated, recalling later that the phone calls from Sunni leaders on the night after the bombing were full of reports, quote, all night long about militia here and militia there, end quote, but that when MNFI had spent several days, quote, going around trying to verify stories about mosques being burned down all over Baghdad, you would go there and there would be a broken window and the mosque would be fine. It was a hysterical period, end quote. This downplaying of the attacks' aftermath came through in a March 3rd press briefing, in which Casey reported that just 350 civilians had been killed in the days since the bombing, and told reporters that quote, it appears the crisis has passed. End quote. While Casey carefully caveated his conclusion with the comment that quote, Iraq is still not out of danger, end quote, his central message was that the situation was not dire and a civil war not imminent. A judgment he reprised on March 9th in prepared comments for congressional testimony. Casey downplayed the violence in reports to senior U.S. leaders as well. In a March 10th briefing to Bush on, quote, post Samara violence in perspective, end quote, Casey noted that, according to MNFI statistics, the number of attacks in the aftermath of the Samara bombing was smaller than during the November 2004 Battle of Fallujah, the August 2004 Battle of Najaf and each of the three election periods during 2005. Quote, Overall attack levels are decreasing since the referendum and have held steady for the last four weeks. End quote, he reported. Aside from the day immediately following the attack, Casey informed the president that the, quote, levels of violence did not increase substantially. End quote. And that, quote, reporting had exaggerated the levels of violence and instability. End quote. Briefing Rumsfeld on the post-Samara situation a few days later on March 22nd, Casey assessed that, quote, civil war in Iraq is not imminent nor inevitable, end quote. As in previous assessments, he emphasized that it was important to look at the bombing in the context of what, in his opinion, had been other, darker periods that the three-year mission had safely weathered. He added his opinion that, quote, Iraq could not be pushed into civil war as long as coalition forces remain in large numbers, ISF remains a national force, and ethnic groups support the political process. In an internal MNFI discussion on March 31st, Casey clarified that he defined the term civil war in Iraq as meaning, Intense, sustained, and widespread ethno-sectarian violence across multiple provinces, accompanied by collapse of the central authority and the ISF. Casey and his staff selected the American Civil War as the model by which to determine whether the crisis in Iraq had, in fact, become a civil war. And in Casey's view, Iraq was nowhere near such a state. There was no one seceding. There was no one trying to set up a different country or join Iran or Syria, end quote, Casey's chief of strategy pointed out years later. Quote, Even the Kurds realized they needed to be part of a bigger Iraq. End quote. Casey and his advisors had set a high bar for describing Iraq's violence as a civil war. In retrospect, the difference between MNFI's appreciation of the immediate post-Samara security situation and that of civilians and non-governmental organizations is striking. To begin with, MNFI's statistics and those of civilian organizations were sharply at odds. For the period stretching from the bombing until March 3rd, in which Casey estimated 350 civilians had been killed— The Baghdad Morgue recorded 1,300 deaths, and the Ministry of the Interior cited 1,077, indicating, perhaps, that the coalition had succumbed to limited situational awareness, but certainly indicating the coalition was not reconciling its reporting with that of civilian counterparts. One potential reason for the divergence in estimates was that MNFI was principally tracking only the attacks that it characterized as ethno-sectarian in nature. An April 10th information paper by MNFI's Intelligence Directorate stated that an attack was considered ethno-sectarian if, quote, it is committed by individuals from one ethnic or religious group against individuals or symbols of a different ethnic or religious group where difference in religion or ethnicity are a primary motivation, end quote. But because the coalition and Iraqi authorities often lacked evidence and basic information about the corpses in Baghdad's streets or floating in the Tigris River, determining whether the motivation of a murder or violent act was ethno-sectarian was highly subjective and erratic, a factor that almost certainly skewed MNFI's statistics on civilian deaths. Staying the Course at MNFI Casey and MNFI remained on course after the Samara bombing to continue the transition of security responsibility to the Iraqis. In Casey's regular updates to Washington, the post Samara violence did not figure significantly. Only two of the 25 video conferences that Casey conducted with the President, SecDef, or National Security Council between February 22nd and the end of May addressed the attack or sectarian violence. By contrast, three briefings addressed the topic of accelerating the transition by further reducing U.S. brigades over the summer. In March, Casey reported to Rumsfeld that MNFI was still on track to draw down from 15 BCTs to 10 by the end of 2006, and from 81 bases to around 50 in the same time frame, indicating that the bombing had done little to alter his campaign plan. However, The bombing had adjusted the plans that Casey and Rumsfeld had made in January to redeploy two brigades early. Now, after conducting the March Force Structure Review, Casey recommended that 2nd Brigade 28th Infantry Division Pennsylvania National Guard would redeploy as planned in June, and 1st Brigade 10th Mountain Division would only be curtailed a month, redeploying in July. While Casey reported that the December decision had yielded positive returns, citing a drop in attacks in Diallo where a brigade was off-ramped, he ultimately argued that it was, quote, still too early to fully assess the impact of the December 2005 decision, end quote. With the updated plan, MNFI would drop to 14 BCTs in June and to 13 by August. The precipitous drop was a result of MNFI's 2005 decision to source only the 2006-2008 to 2008 rotation with 13 total BCTs, meaning that when the 2nd Brigade 28th Infantry Division Pennsylvania National Guard left Multinational Force West, or MNFW, and the 1st Brigade 10th Mountain Division left Multinational Division Baghdad, or MNDB, there would be no backfill for either unit. The MNFI high value target list reflected this continuity in strategy as well. Despite considerable evidence of Shia death squads and militias stoking sectarian violence throughout 2005 and in the immediate aftermath of the bombing, MNFI's list of the most wanted terrorists and insurgents remained almost exclusively Sunni. On the February 25, 2006 list, Twelve of the nineteen names were members of AQI or other affiliated jihadist organizations, and the top target was Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Itzat Ibrahim al-Duri had dropped to number 19 on the list, one of only five former regime members still on the list. Tellingly, only two targets were associated with Shia organizations. Operation Scales of Justice even as MNFI continued at the strategic level on its course of transition, drawdown, and consolidation, Casey and his commanders recognized that the violence in the Iraqi capital required a tactical response. On March 12th, MNFI launched Operation Scales of Justice a month-long U.S.-Iraqi effort to establish new fixed checkpoints in and between Baghdad's neighborhoods and to enforce curfews reminiscent of the Baathist regime's pre-2003 method of controlling the city's population. To ensure that the operation could serve the additional purpose of demonstrating the Iraqi security force's growing capability, MNFI planned Operation Scales of Justice collaboratively with Iraqi leaders and aimed to integrate U.S. and Iraqi units throughout the city, but with Iraqi units actually, quote, in the lead, end quote, on the street. The fixed checkpoints, which aimed to inhibit the freedom of movement of sectarian elements, were combined with raids to capture individuals suspected of conducting sectarian violence. Two U.S. brigades, 4th Brigade 101st Airborne Division in East Baghdad and 4th Brigade 4th Infantry Division in Central South Baghdad, would support Iraqi-led operations on either side of the city. In southwest Baghdad, MNFI committed one battalion from 2nd Brigade 1st Armored Division, the Call Forward Force that had been off-ramped in December from Iraq to Kuwait. At the same time, MNCI moved one battalion from Colonel Michael Steele's 3rd Brigade 101st Airborne Division in Salahuddin Province, or MNDN, to East Baghdad, and one Marine battalion from RCT-5 to West Baghdad, bringing the total U.S. contingent for the operation to 10,000 troops. The influx of U.S. troops into the Baghdad area was a partial reversal of the policy of shrinking the American footprint in the capital that Casey had been employing just weeks earlier. The MNFI commander had previously aimed to starve U.S. units of troops, thereby forcing them to partner fully with their Iraqi counterparts and to concentrate tactical units on the forward operating bases on the city's periphery. This approach had confounded many of Casey's tactical commanders who had difficulty finding ways to tamp down the sectarian violence with diminishing resources at the same time they were instructed to distance themselves from the areas they were tasked to control. When Casey visited the 4th B.C.T. 101st Airborne Division in East Baghdad on the day of the Samara bombing, for example, Brigade Commander Colonel Thomas Vail complained that his transformed brigade was, quote, stretched, end quote, as it tried to secure Sodder City's population of three million, with two of its maneuver battalions missing. Casey responded that feeling stretched was, quote, part of the plan, end quote. As Casey told historians later, in his view, the only way to make an army unit do less was to give it less with which to do the job. This concept would shape much of MNFI's response to the post-Samara violence throughout the spring and summer of 2006. For his part, Jaffari committed to reinforce the initial footprint of 26,000 ISF with an additional 11,000 Iraqi troops. However, in light of coalition commanders' concerns about the Interior Ministry's involvement in sectarian activity, the commando and National Police Brigades would fall under the tactical control of U.S. Brigade combat teams in order to restrain their ability to quote conduct rogue operations. End quote. All told, the coalition and Iraqi leaders expected an operation involving forty seven thousand troops inside the city. Meanwhile, three weeks after the spasm of killings that followed the shrine bombing, Casey began to reorient his headquarters to the new threat from death squads and, quote, extrajudicial killings, end quote. On March 15th, three days after the launch of Operation Scales of Justice, Casey stood up a joint U.S.-Iraqi Extrajudicial Killing, or EJK, task force inside the MNFI headquarters to investigate sectarian violence and nominate targets that could be used to detain, prosecute, or neutralize those responsible. Even as the Operation Scales of Justice checkpoints appeared around the city, there were plenty of killings for the EJK task force to investigate. On March twenty-first, Iraqi and U.S. officials estimated that almost 200 executed and tortured corpses had been found in Baghdad over the previous two weeks, a tripling of Baghdad's normal murder rate. Five days later, U.S. and ISF troops found 30 beheaded bodies in Diyala province. On March ninth, armed men in police uniforms, who were likely actually police, killed nine people in a raid in the Mansour neighborhood in West Baghdad. On the same day, gunmen abducted 35 Baghdadis in four separate mass kidnappings across the city, and Baghdad morgue officials reported that 30 to 40 dead bodies were found on the streets of the city each day. Within two weeks of the launch of Operation Scales of Justice, U.S. troops were noting large armed groups in the Baghdad region, a shift in tactics more akin to the 2004 uprisings than to the more shadowy militant posture of 2005. On March 25th, a large gunfight erupted between J.A.M. and Sunni fighters in the mixed-sect town of Mahmudiyah, south of Baghdad, a rare force-on-force battle between militias that ended with an estimated 40 gunmen killed or wounded. A day later, on March 26th, a combined CJSOTF Iraqi special operations raid on a JAM compound in Adamiyah resulted in 16 Sadrist militiamen killed. The raid in Adamiyah, which had been launched to target the same sectarian forces responsible for killing ISOF soldiers earlier in the month, had serious political repercussions. In a display of their information operations savvy, Less than an hour after the mission had concluded, the Sadrists had removed weapons from the site of the battle, repositioned militiamen's bodies to make it look like they had been executed in the midst of prayer, and released photos and a statement accusing the coalition and ISOF of massacring innocent Shia worshippers in a mosque. Picked up by major press organizations, the photos created political shockwaves that reverberated back to Washington, with the SecDef and the CJCS fielding questions about the operation a six-week investigation that involved the Iraqi Prime Minister's Office and MNFI ensued, with the special operators eventually cleared of any wrongdoing on the strength of recordings from helmet-mounted video cameras and a combat cameraman who accompanied the mission. However, the political damage had been done. CJSOTF missions against J.A.M. death squads were essentially sidelined during the investigation— and when the CJSOTF proposed a comprehensive mission in late May that would simultaneously hit dozens of JAM targets from Basra to Sadr City in one night, Casey decided that the missions would be conducted sequentially over a period of days instead, blunting their effect. The sectarian violence taking place during Operation Scales of Justice sometimes had political overtones as well. On April 7th, three suicide bombers attacked the Baratha Mosque in West Baghdad, a Shia religious compound controlled by the Senior Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq politician and cleric Jalaluddin Sagir. Sunnis had long suspected Sagir, a former Badr Corps member, of operating Shia death squads out of the mosque complex, and the April 7th bombing appeared to target him specifically. Two of the bombers, dressed as women, detonated themselves among worshippers, but the third penetrated Sagir's office and almost killed Sagir himself. Altogether, their bombings killed 85 and wounded another 160. One reason Operation Scales of Justice failed to stem this kind of violence was that the ambitious plans for Iraqi security forces reinforcements and ISF-led operations in Baghdad did not happen. Only 2,000 of Joffrey's promised 11,000 Iraqi troops ever materialized, leaving the operation significantly under-resourced. Kurdish-led ISF brigades in particular did not respond to orders to deploy from northern Iraq to the capital, highlighting that the new Iraqi army the coalition had built was not a national institution, but instead a force with many ethnically homogenous or single-sect units that answered to political parties rather than the formal chain of command. The units that did deploy in Baghdad suffered from the same ghost soldier problem that coalition commanders had observed in the Iraqi army and police in late 2005. The Iraqi unit's real strength on Baghdad's streets was often significantly less than their strength on paper or in transition readiness assessment reports. The performance of those Iraqi troops that were on the street was disappointing. Often relegated to duty at checkpoints, the ISF seldom left them and the checkpoints themselves largely failed to limit the movement of insurgents or weapons. The Iraqi soldiers manning the Operation Scales of Justice checkpoints tended to be, quote, poorly equipped, undisciplined, and running around in their skivvies, end quote. MNDB Commander Major General James D. Thurman observed. Inspecting the checkpoints himself, the Iraqi Minister of Defense commented that the enemy would have to be quite bad not to be able to bypass or get through the barriers. Meanwhile, Iraqi army units that were well-trained and capable often were restrained from operating against Shia death squads because of the political repercussions of taking on sectarians who were connected to major Iraqi political parties. By the time Operation Scales of Justice ended in mid-April, the number of civilian deaths in Baghdad each week had dropped to about 230 down from over 300 in the weeks following the Samara bombing, but still significantly higher than the December 2005 average of about 160. Nevertheless, despite the still elevated violence and the sobering performance of the ISF, Casey and his command judged that the situation in Baghdad had stabilized, at least temporarily. MNFI's April 15th assessment of the operations in Baghdad concluded that, quote, Operations Scales of Justice and Northern Lights helped reduce the number of VBIED or vehicle borne IED and SVBIED slash SVEST or Suicide Vehicle-Born IED slash vest attacks in Baghdad. The nature of the violence changed as there is an increase in the small arms attacks, but violence overall appears to be reduced since those operations started." End quote attack levels meanwhile were quote, "on the rise but have not reached the levels that occurred around the January 2005 election and the referendum." End quote. Finally, rather than blaming the violence on a worsening sectarianism, the MNFI assessment blamed the slow pace of the formation of the new government, concluding that quote, "much of the increase in violence is likely due to the perceived instability of the government." This instability is exacerbated by the prolonged period of time that it is taking the government to form. End quote. As had long been the case, MNFI leaders hoped that the seating of the new democratically elected Iraqi government would naturally encourage the warring parties to begin to resolve their problems politically. The fundamental nature of the conflict had changed. Despite MNFI's relatively positive pronouncements and Casey's own, as Operation Scales of Justice came to a close, the MNFI commander's perspective on the post-Samara environment was beginning to evolve, as was that of his senior subordinates. On April 22nd, just a week after MNFI had assessed Operation Scales of Justice as a relative success, Casey's intelligence director, Zonner told Casey and a gathering of coalition commanders that the post-Samara period had witnessed, quote, a shift in the nature of the struggle from a Sunni insurgency attempting to derail the political process and terminate an occupation to a competition among social and political leaders and their ethno sectarian constituencies for economic power and political dominance. End quote. The drivers of violence had shifted as well, Zahner concluded. Before Samara, MNFI had perceived most sectarian violence as a matter of tit-for-tat attacks in which the Badr Corps conducted targeted killings of individual Sunni figures, while Sunni militants carried out indiscriminate suicide attacks against the Shia population. However, after the bombing, Shia attacks against Sunnis had become indiscriminate as well, with J.A.M. taking a much more prominent role by carrying out random sectarian killings against the Sunni population at large. Iran's role in the sectarian violence also became clearer, with MNFI concluding that quote, Iran is arming, training, and financing Shia militant groups, especially Jaish Al Mahdi and Badr. End quote. Casey was coming to the even broader conclusion two months after the Samara attack that the nature of the conflict, as he termed it, was changing. It was a proposition he had been pondering since before the Shrine bombing, reflecting both his frustrations with the Jafari government and his recognition of the Sunni-supported AQI bombing campaign. A week before the attack, Casey had proffered to his subordinate commanders the idea that the Iraq conflict had become a fight for the division of power among competing ethnic and sectarian groups, rather than an insurgency against the coalition. By late April, Casey's thinking on the question had crystallized. The war was a struggle for the division of political and economic power by Iraqis, he told a gathering of U.S. generals on April 24th, with four different groups driving the conflict—Iran, Shia extremists, secular Sunni resistance, and Sunni extremists. In this altered paradigm, fighting the coalition was no longer the central objective of the conflicting parties, and for the first time in the war, the U.S. Theater Command was acknowledging the powerful, destabilizing influence Iran and Shia extremists were having on the campaign. Casey continued his analysis along these lines in discussions with Rumsfeld two days later. The nature of the violence had changed, he reported to the SecDef. Since the Samara incident, eight times more civilians were killed by execution or murder than by car bomb, a significant change since AQI's 2005 car bomb campaign. MNFI was also showing a spike in the number of murders and executions, from 11 a day before the bombing to a high of 36 a day for the week of March 8th to 14th. Casey remained hopeful that the escalating violence was only a short-term trend and noted that for the week of April 13th to 20th, the number of murders and executions had dropped to only 29 per day. The updated campaign plan that Casey and MNFI published on April 28 also reflected the change in the command's new understanding of the Iraqi environment. The April plan intended to lay out the coalition's activities throughout a four-year period that would theoretically include the end of the MNFI mission and a transition to, quote, normal diplomatic and security relationships, end quote. But in a change from earlier campaign plans, the April version noted that the war had evolved from an insurgency directed against external actors, i.e. the coalition, into a conflict quote, between and among its ethnic and sectarian groups over the distribution of political and economic power, end quote, as evidenced by the quote, outpouring of rage and violence, end quote, following the Samara attack. Whereas coalition leaders had assumed in late 2004 and throughout 2005 that the Iraqi election process would naturally stabilize the country, the April 28th document declared instead that "...voting in the elections has been substantially driven by ethnic and sectarian identity rather than by political issues, reflecting a polarized society which inhibits the creation of a stable, enduring democratic state." For the first time, The MNFI directive also identified militias, called extra-governmental armed groups, and ethno-sectarian violence as part of the overall threat to the coalition's mission. Despite this dramatically changed analysis, coalition commanders did not believe the changing situation invalidated the core principle of previous campaign plans, that responsibility must be shifted to the Iraqis as quickly as possible in order to avoid continued Iraqi dependency and to minimize the buildup of opposition, or antibodies, against coalition forces. Enduring strategic success will only be achieved by Iraqis. Iraq's problems require Iraqi solutions, end quote, the April 28th document stated, quote, we will succeed by increasingly putting Iraqis in charge across all lines of operations, moving to a supporting role, reducing our visibility and level of involvement, and by pressing them to address and resolve Iraqi problems with Iraqi resources, end quote. In 2006 and 2007, the coalition would aim to foster the quote, formation of a government of national unity end quote, in order to quote, address those conditions that have the potential to push Iraq into a civil war. At the same time, the coalition would quote, progressively transition battle space to the IA or Iraqi army, quote, prepare Iraqi police to quote, begin assuming the lead role in combating the insurgency, end quote, and mentor the new government so that its ministries and institutions would quote, begin to develop the skills to govern effectively. Quote. The coalition would also carry on with its attempts to persuade Sunni insurgents to eschew violence in favor of politics. Quote, coalition outreach to Sunni Arabs will continue to stress that the political process offers the best hope for resolution of their legitimate concerns the involvement of Sunni Arabs in the political process at all levels will be essential. Finally, abandoning the 2005 emphasis on reestablishing control over the borders in order to interdict what Casey and others had assumed to be the external accelerance of the conflict, the April Plan declared that quote, Baghdad's significance as the seat of government and crucible of sectarian strife makes it the coalition main effort for 2006. In addition to Baghdad, the MNFI plan identified nine cities of strategic significance where the coalition would consolidate its presence and focus on developing capable Iraqi forces to assume responsibility for security, Najaf, Ramadi, Bacaba, Babil or Hilla, Fallujah, Samara, Kirkuk, Mosul, and Basra. Casey later explained his rationale for maintaining the core principles of previous campaign plans, noting that the Samara bombing, didn't cause me to go back and question the fundamental underpinning of our campaign plan, which was that Iraqi success in the long term will only be achieved by Iraqis. My view then, and my view continues to be now, that they had to work through these sectarian problems. It wasn't going to be pretty as they worked their way through them, but they had to solve them. They had to get to the bottom of them, and we could only help them get through this period. End End of Chapter 19 Part 1 The Iraqi Civil War Comes into the Open January-June to 2006 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021